Thank you so much for joining the Gen Church Wild Podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022, or should I say, we're almost halfway through 2022. And we have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you to connect around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these events, gatherings, and opportunities, head on over to mygenerations.church to learn more. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. We're going to continue our series in Masterclass this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 50 through 58 for you. It says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Welcome back to Master Class. We only have about two weeks left, and so I have to ask, have you retained anything? Have you, have you kept some of that knowledge in your head? And if you're just joining us at, later in this series, that's all good. You can go back and binge watch at your own leisure via our YouTube channel. Got a you know, little shameless plug right there. But my hope is that you're better at filtering all of life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I hope that you are better at that. We've been in this series asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? Or in our vernacular, what does it really mean to live your everyday faith? There are all kinds of opinions and descriptions of what it could mean or should mean or what it should be like for you to be a spiritual person or to live your everyday faith. And the answer throughout this series has been that true spirituality, true everyday faith is to be animated by the Holy Spirit and respond to the scripture and the spirit in everyday life. And out of that, with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, studying the scripture, responding to those two, you will become more like Jesus. And while we all become more like Jesus, rather than just promote the Jesus brand as another form of self-expression, the universal experience of everyone in this room will be death. See, the hope is that we can become more like Jesus. 
And even as we become more like Jesus, we will all still face that great enemy. Is death our enemy? How we view death, whether by our own perception, whether it's through Jesus or others, that influences our daily choices, our everyday life. Most people, when they think of life and death, they describe it as a two-part process. You've got life, and then you've got death. And maybe in that death, there's some sort of afterlife. You know, if, if you've followed along with any of the Marvel TV series, one of their most recent series explored the idea that everyone's got some form or perception of life after death. And so it's really a matter of what you believe will determine what that is like for you. We all have some version of life and then death and then kind of whatever happens there. But the question is, is the Christian perspective that? That we just simply have life and then we have afterlife and death? Yes or no? Let me be very quick to this point. No. Let's go back to the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. For the Christian, we live, we die, and there's afterlife. But there's a part three. It's called resurrection. It's called eternity, where we are raised to new life, where our spirit, our soul is rejoined with our body on the new heaven and new earth. See, we live and we die and that soul is removed from the body and Christians are then in heaven. Upon Jesus' return, the living and the dead are resurrected in a new body after death. The Christian life is that three part. Our life now, death and waiting, then resurrection. Now there are all kinds of questions revolved around that middle section, the, the death, the intermediate state, like where are people at, how does that look like, and there are some answers in the scriptures. But I think the biblical authors don't give much time to them because the hope of the resurrected life, which will last longer, should drive present reality. So much of our fixation, even as we view heaven and reality, is that intermediary state. It is what will be life like after death. And we forget that after death, there's an after, after life. It's resurrection. And that truth, that reality should shape our everyday choices. Now I say that, but we have conflicting messages in our cultural moment. So let me give you Paul's message as he describes how in our physical state we cannot exist in that life after life after death. Verse 52, 51 into 52 says, We will not fall, all fall asleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. So Paul's not referring to a rapture here. He's referring to a resurrection. There will be people still alive when Jesus returns. And what happens to them? Last week, we started to look at the, the incorruptible body that we will have in that resurrection, that we will have a new body that doesn't fade or decay. But what about the people who are still living? They will be changed when Jesus returns. Therefore, they will not have to die. Sleep is a euphemism for death in order to have 
So in or, they will not have to die in order to have that resurrection body. They will be changed and transformed just as we will be changed and transformed. One cosmic act of new creation will remake you and all things. The imagery is the changing of clothes. Ones that we won't wear out or decay. A body powered not by your soul, your personality, your giftedness, but by the Spirit of God, fully, completely human again. And Paul doesn't just pull this idea out of thin air and gives us some nice little, you know, like cartoon type reality of like, you know, when you're watching maybe the old Tom and Jerry's and you get the picture of heaven and you get the picture of hell. And it's like, oh, I wonder if that's going to be like or what, you know, and they, they kind of cartoonize this. No, what Paul is not doing is not making something up imaginary. He's re- actually responding in quotes what God has shared with former prophets. He shares the scripture where God has revealed and how the end will unfold. So first, Paul quotes Isaiah 25, 8. And in context, it's a passage where he talks about the future. Not the life after death, but the life after life after death. And here are those words from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. There's going to be a potluck. A feast with aged wine. Prime cuts of choice meat. Find vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud. The shroud over all peoples. The sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. Death disappears. Isaiah, through God, is describing the death of death. It's interesting because Paul actually swaps out a word here. In the text, it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. He changes the word forever and exchanges it for victory. He inserts the Greek word Nike. And the, the consumption, the consummation of Jesus' victory on the cross and resurrection is a victory. It is a cure. And so death is defeated through Jesus. In the end times, when Jesus comes back and on, when God declares that on his mountain, and there's that potluck, with all of your favorite food, with all of your favorite drink, with the people who have believed in Jesus. It's like a championship parade and feast. It's enjoyable. It's celebration. But I think if we realize that there will also be tears, and I think it's not because there's pain or because sin and present is, I think, pure speculation on my part. That we will realize who's not there as well. The people that we love and hold dear. Who are here with God, with our forever family. Celebrating, rejoicing in the presence of God. And he promises to wipe away every tear. 
And I think we might be shedding a tear, not just of joy, but also of sadness for who isn't present. Which should give us urgency that while we have the hope of victory and death, other people need to experience that victory because you and I well know that we chase little victories throughout all areas of our life and we cheapen the eternal victory through trying to manufacture some sort of euphoria in accomplishing little victories. And I'm not saying little victories aren't a big deal, that we shouldn't have a sense of peace or that we shouldn't seek to be successful or or that we shouldn't have a sense of accomplishment when we do good and quality things. What I'm saying is those are to be a foretaste of the great championship parade, the great celebration with God, with others. When we're fully human and we get to experience fully, rightly, and completely the ultimate victory. And Paul's not done yet. He cites Hosea 13 verse 14. And on the whole, Hosea is about a prophet who takes a prostitute as his wife. It's a giant metaphor for how Israel constantly abandoned God's will and way. Yet Hosea's faithfulness, no matter how difficult, embodies the love of God. In the midst of this, the pain of sin is real. The scriptures in Hosea 2 says that the penalty of sin is death. And death is the result of sin. Cover to cover, the Bible speaks that the result of sin is death. But death was not a part of God's plan. Hosea says, I will ransom them from the owner of the grave. Jesus stares death in the face. God taunts death. You think you've won? You think you can sway people? You think you can intimidate people? You think you can confuse people? You think you can bring a weight over people? Such a weight that they make the temporary the ultimate instead of the eternal the ultimate. And we must face that choice each and every day. Will we seek temporary victory? Will we allow the fear of death to taunt us? Or will we choose Jesus as he has chosen us? And he doesn't minimize sin here. He says, justice will come due. Sin will be dealt with. The pollution that racks our world from sin that results in death will be cleaned up, will be made right, will in a snap, be made new. And is that reality? Do, Do we feel God's love? Do we see that part of God's plan was not death, but a movement to and for people? And so as Paul writes, cites the scripture, he knows that the God of the universe, the living God can stare death in the face and say, you don't have the final say. You don't get the win. It's not over. And what happens is we tend to walk around with a weight as if the end is when our eyes snap shut. And it's over. 
God taunts death because death is not the end. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't, he doesn't minimize sin because there's going to be that punishment. Because death is not alone. Death has a posse. Death has friends. Greed, sexual immorality, racism, oppression, demons, the kingdom of darkness want to convince you that now is all there is. That the mortal is all that you have to live for. That if you can experience pleasure, approval, control, power today, then you win. And the reality is that if we think that when we have control, power, approval, pleasure now, if we think that's the case, if that's what we chase after, then we don't actually win. We lose. And so God invites us to be on the winning team because Jesus is at war with death. And he wins. The resurrection at the end of time completes the war. So I've already alluded to it, but let me be a little bit more clear. I do believe that we make two mistakes when we think about death. Because we don't easily say death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Our everyday actions don't reflect almost that taunt of death. That you don't have control over me. The first mistake that I think we make is that, I've said, is that we're scared of death. But the Christian has nothing to fear. Yes, the slow decay towards death is shameful. The body and mind stops working. It's unglorious. It's like a slow decline to like being a zombie where nothing quite works right. (laughs) Nothing kind of is in sync. And sometimes you feel like you're just wandering around. But the moment that you close your eyes when your physical body is decaying and has almost completely decayed, you open your eyes to the living God. And that's not the end of the story. But that's still so glorious and the end of the story will be even more spectacular. Now to someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, it makes sense to be scared of death. Philosopher Thomas Hobbes says death is a fearful leap into the dark. And that's what it is. If you don't have a hope of life after life after death, And so many of us say that we aren't scared of death, or at least we know we shouldn't be scared, but our lives scream otherwise. Many of us see the fullest sense of life as our inner true self to be expressed outwardly. Our sense of self is in here, not what we do. Let me phrase, the authoritative nature in our lives reside not in community or institutions or an external God. Rather, the seat of authority of our life is ourself. And if people, if things, if institutions, if others would just do what I want, then there would be truth, then there would be harmony, then it would be easier, then I would experience some sort of victory. It's why some of us have the gnawing urge or the slight whisper that says, yeah, just maybe... This isn't for me today. 
Because we try on Jesus like we try on clothes. And it's not rooted in our soul. And so we want the Jesus brand at times when it's convenient or easy rather than recognize the seat of the Holy Spirit is in our heart and that points to a more true and full reality. So the ultimate sense of truth, authority, and life is not ourself, but the true and living God who dwells in us, who allows us to then express that in real and true and powerful ways. And so sometimes we got to deal with the reality that maybe our mindset is, I'll just pick up my Bible or I'll just pick up my faith or I'll just pick up loving someone else tomorrow when it's a little bit easier or I have some more time in my schedule. And that shouts that we don't truly believe there's life after life after death. To say this a little bit different, an individual's inner identity is defined by inner desire and that we think that we must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person. And those acts seemingly have no moral significance because as long as I am my true self, then I cannot be wrong. But removing the moral significance of an act does not remove the intrinsic moral consequence of that act as to harm self others, and God. A nightly beer, an escape via video game, a text with a partial truth, having a new and exciting big revelation or story or vacation in every conversation, no matter what it is, that list really isn't exhaustive. No matter what you try to, to, to get some semblance of rest or peace or victory or escape, while you may feel good for the moment, you could honestly ask the people in your lives around you how they feel in response to these authentic acts. Because sometimes we feel like we must experience this true self now at all costs. Especially if we live as if we only have one life to live. But your most truest self is not something that emerges or something you discover. It's something received by God that he has blessed you with. I'm not saying you do away with your personality or how God has gifted you. What I'm saying is you get your most full and true sense of self where all of your gifts are used rightly and completely, where your personality shines. It's joy. You're your most healthy self when the Spirit of God is bringing that out and directing and engaging with others so that people, when they encounter you, don't feel a sense of fear or dread or guilt or shrink back, but they're actually drawn closer and see a more full picture, a different expression of Jesus in your life. And often we fight the zombie fiction zombification of our planet and the people of our planet, not through means which prolong life, but with a life shaped by the resurrection. The only way we reverse the decay, the only way we point to that we just all won't crash and burn and be left in the dust is not through an attempt to prolong life through artificial means. Again, I'm not beyond helping people with health, mental health, and, and healing sickness. Please don't hear me say that. 
but we point to the most true renewal that can ever take place by a life shaped by the resurrection. Which leads me to the second mistake we make. Sometimes we have a shallow or trite view of death. It's like, oh, death isn't a big deal, especially when pain or suffering is happening. You've probably said it, I know I have at times, but now it's really hard when I cringe when I hear phrases like, especially well-meaning people, when they say things like, it's part of God's plan, or it's God's will, or God is in control, as a way to like minimize the devastation and the destruction of sin and pain and death. And we try to just kind of dismiss it and push it to the side and so that we don't really have to like deal with it and we chalk up spiritual phrases hoping that if we sound spiritual enough and we say the right enough things that it will actually be spiritual. Well, we know that the spirituality is not in what we say but in who we are in the present. And so, no. God's plan was Eden. His plan was perfection, harmony, no sin, no death. And there are two warring kingdoms on this earth right now. The kingdom of darkness and God's kingdom. And God's kingdom will and does win. And his family is expanding his rule and reign. Pointing to the kingdom of light. But no, it is not God's plan. God is not applauding the fact that death is real. The fact that sin is pervasive or harmful. See, in fact, our God has begun been giving his life away from the very moment sin and death entered the picture to restore and redeem, to return things back to the way it was. So if you say things like God's in control, if by that you mean God is at work in the midst of pain, suffering, and death, then yes, I'll agree with that. But we should not chalk up certain phrases that have empty baggage, especially if we're unwilling to be present as God has been present with us in the midst of that loving and pervasive and proximate to show us what true life with him is like. So let's not for a moment settle into the camp that God is the cause of sin and death, that God delights when sin pollutes and death and snares. God does not delight in that. And so when we bump up against evil and its friends, we should take Paul's words here seriously. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor is in the Lord, is not in vain. See, we're complicit in the propagating of a fearful view of death and a shallow view of death. But in order to combat these mistakes as the church, we need to relearn how to hope and how to grieve. Biblical hope does not say don't worry, it's God's plan, or don't worry, trust God, it's his will, or don't worry about death, cancer, the miscarriage, or divorce. It doesn't say don't worry, keep it at arm's length, don't think about it, don't bring your baggage in. That's another phrase that I hate when we talk about in the church. It's that, oh, don't bring your concerns in. No, bring your concerns and bring your weight in. Don't keep it at a distance, bear it out, because God will meet you there in the midst of that pain. 
And biblical hope is the confidence that God will meet you there in the midst of that pain, that he is present with you. And if biblical hope places confidence in the living God, that he will be faithful and true to who he has always been and who he will be in the future, that God is consistent and constant, that no matter what evil you come up against, nothing is too far gone. Because in life, after the death, after life, God is there. And just as Jesus came back from the dead, he can bring change and provide healing. Jesus can turn evil into good, not through a zap in the distance, but a surreal warm embrace as he is with you right now. And sometimes instead of prevention, he offers presence. Because presence brings transformation. And we can have confidence in the future by being reminded of God's creative presence in the past. I love the Old Testament stories because God creatively at times had to figure out how to be present with his people when they didn't want to be present with him. So much, His creativity was so imaginative that he decided to put on flesh and blood and walk amongst us. So creative that when Jesus ascends back to the Father, he sends his spirit to be with us and dwelt in people. He provides a way. And so don't mistake that for God's delight and evil, meaning we need to learn how to grieve, not just hope. I mentioned earlier that the greatest sense of authority often comes from ourself and must be expressed. Sometimes we find this so enticing because we are unable to process our emotions and feelings well. We pride emotion in our world, anger, sadness, but we struggle to give words to our feelings so as to metabolize them. Sometimes we're scared to feel sad as if no one's ever allowed to feel sad. We repress our hurt and our anger. We distract ourselves That moment that you feel a little awkwardness in the conversation, you're feeling some sort of way and you're not quite sure where to go. And so typically our response is to pull out our phone or to change directions or not to find some other solution. When we're going through a difficult time, sometimes we seek a safe space or we retreat in another way. But the reality is, is we need to be able to metabolize our feelings, to, to express them, to identify them, to have our feelings before our feelings have us. Because hurt people hurt people. And if we're unable to metabolize our feelings and truly grieve, when we do experience hurt, when there is pain, when there is death, sit and lament and cry out to God, God, where are you? If we're not able to do that well and do that rightly, then we'll miss an opportunity to frankly experience God's presence in the midst of that grief. So we oftentimes try to medicate both self and clinically. And when we are unable to grieve the loss and pain due to sin, even our own, we short-circuit our responsiveness to the Spirit by our desire to manipulate or control whatever causes us to feel a certain way. Oftentimes, we say, I'm never stepping out of my comfort zone again. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to embrace that. Or that was awkward. I wonder how I looked in the midst of that. Or I said the wrong thing there. I did the wrong thing. And we feel guilty. And that cycle of guilt, shame, fear just continues to cycle until it's interrupted 
by the good news of Jesus that says, your guilt has been dealt with. That penalty has been paid. Your shame, you're restored to honor. You have a place with God. And you do not need to fear because death is not the end. And so when we get those emotions, when we get those feelings, when we feel our anger, our sadness, or even our joy, our excitement, when we've learned something new, know that in the midst of that, we can identify that and know that God is there and He meets us there. He created us with the capacity to feel. But even when we feel deeply and when we feel sad, we must be able to create space for grief and formation and processing. Because we will neither be able to relearn how to hope or how to grieve if we are unwilling to enter into this world with grace. See, God gives you grace. He provides a way. He gives purposeful favor towards you. That is what grace is. And so it's okay to grieve and know that he gives space and presence to you. And some of you today simply have exchanged the moral law of the Old Testament for the inner moral law of your self-expressed identity. And rather than more law, more dictation, more, more do this, we need less law and more imagination. Because the presence of grace and love enables us to have a creative imagination how to be present with people and others for how God might be at work in our life in ways that are less prescriptive and more unfolding. See, the law which is good functions as the agent of sin because it either leads to pride or achievement or reveals the depth of one's depravity. In either case, it becomes death-dealing instead of life-giving. But the principle of resurrection proves that we are not under the law any longer. Sin is the ultimate cause of death and the result can't be defeated unless the cause is defeated. And the cause was defeated through the imagination of the cross. What the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. To declare war on sin and with the resurrection, death. Imagination of a new world as a new person through Jesus, leads to a change in instincts, bringing together the ability to hope and grieve, living with true wisdom. And in doing so, you'll be able to reject sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, in favor of a life of integrity, immovable behind the spirit force of the Lord who was raised from the dead. The band's going to begin to come forward and we're going to begin to respond together. But we've been conditioned to say and operate as if the world operates on rational arguments. Or if we just bring our truest, authentic self into the world, then everything will be okay. But our greatest sense of self comes from the assurance of a world made new. Starting in us. With God and for others, and hope for a world that's renewed, grieve for the world in its present state, live in proximity to others, giving your life away so that they may experience the death 
of death with us. And that is why we sing. That is why we reflect. Because the death of death is true. May we live as if that is so. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Gen Church Walk podcast. I hope today's teaching encouraged you and maybe even challenged you to respond to the scripture and the spirit so that you can live your faith every day. Thanks for checking us out. Have a great week.